Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a New Books Network podcast. I'm Tyler Yank, a co-host of the channel, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Ruma Chopra. Dr. Chopra is a professor in the Department of History at San Jose State University, and today she is with me to discuss her newest book, Almost Home, Maroons Between Slavery and Freedom in Jamaica, Nova Scotia, and Sierra Leone, which was published this year by Yale University Press. Ruma, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me, Tyler. Ruma, I wonder if you could begin by saying a little bit about yourself and maybe a little bit about your previous projects, since I think this is your third book. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, sure. I um, I came to this uh, book quite by accident. My first uh, book was on the, on the American loyalists and their relationship with the British Empire, especially in New York City during the years of the war. I looked at why the British uh, didn't trust the Loyalists as much as they could have given the Loyalists um, allegiance and expressions of allegiance to them. And so as I was finishing that project, uh, the second book is also actually on the Loyalists, but I look at Loyalism in Canada and the Caribbean. And as I was finishing this work on the Loyalists, I was in Nova Scotia in the archives, and I just stumbled across um, a love affair or maybe it wasn't a love affair, maybe it was something uh, much more sad. And that was a relationship the governor of Nova Scotia, uh, John Wentworth, had with a Maroon woman. And I had not previous to that time really thought much about the Maroons. I'd come across them um, as I taught courses on slavery, but I'd never really um, imagined them in, in Nova Scotia. So I was just, just I just became curious about uh, John Wentworth and the Maroon Woman, and then I kind of followed the Maroon story in Nova Scotia, uh, which then took me um, to all these other places like Jamaica and finally to Sierra Leone. So I think um, as I finished the, the Almost Home, I think I realized that there's a, more of a continuity between my first books and this book than I had initially thought. I mean, I entered with the kind of a, you know, kind of a, a moment of uh, sexual transaction, but I realized that what I was really studying once again was the nature of allegiance, um, of attachment to place, to empire, and how um, this this concept is much more complex than we usually think about. And uh, the Maroons were really uh, interesting to work with because I liked them much more initially than I had liked the American loyalists when <laughs> I started working on them. I thought I didn't. It took me a long time to really like the American loyalists um, because there's so much negative um, review about them. But I liked the Maroons uh, a lot when I entered. I was ready to feel sympathetic. I was ready to really you know, show how wonderful they were and how much they'd struggled so it was very tough when I started researching the book and I came across parts of the Maroons uh, which were not uh, you know, admirable in the way we think about admirable characters in history. So it, was really, it really taught me a lot about um, how people work in real situations to really uh, manage their lives, to make the best of their lives uh, in ways which we don't usually think about. 
think we're we're kind of locked. I think um, not all of us, not everywhere, but with this real idea of you know what is uh, what is bravery, what is resistance, uh, what takes courage, what's accommodation, um, and I think studying the Maroons really showed the the kind of the complexity of how people have to live their lives in you know in in a situation where they have very very few choices. Yeah, so to set the scene, I guess, for our listeners who might not be familiar with even slavery studies, for example, could you give us the definition of maroon and maybe explain where the story begins? Um, sure. The maroons um, are were um, escaped slaves, uh, many uh, formed in many New World societies, especially in the Caribbean and also in Africa for that matter. So there were groups of escaped slaves who actually escaped slavery to form their autonomous communities, usually military communities, uh, usually patriarchal, um, and usually surviving through kind of continuous raiding of the other societies, in my case, uh, the slave society of Jamaica. Did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And then, so the Trelawney Town Maroons, why are they special? Okay, sorry. Yeah, so no. my, uh, my book begins um, with the Trelawney Chan Maroons, which were the largest maroon community um, in northern Jamaica by the um, sort of middle of the 18th century. And uh, they were, um, they, I begin with them because they are the maroons who uh, were very loyal to the British Empire. And they made treaties with the Jamaican government uh, to remain loyal to the Jamaican government and to the British Empire um, in, uh, in exchange for being loyal to both the Jamaican slave owners and being loyal to the empire. So the Trinitian Maroons had a kind of a very complex relationship with the British Empire, which uh, lasted for almost five decades. So it's it's curious that these people who were so trusted by the Jamaican government to be loyal to them, and by, by loyal to them, I mean that the Maroons um, agreed to protect slavery in relation for their own autonomy. So mm. they, were, they were granted some land in Jamaica, and they signed um, sort of legal treaties with the government. And in exchange for their land and their own freedom, they agreed to be uh, to capture runaway slaves and to protect um, slave owners from other runaway communities. So the Maroons essentially made sure there were no other Maroon communities forming. And it was not just Trelawney Town Maroons, there were multiple Maroon communities um, in the island of Jamaica. And I studied them because they were the ones who, um, in the midst of a, of a war, are deported from Jamaica end up in Nova Scotia. And after about four years in Nova Scotia, they are sent to uh, colonize the new British settlement in West Africa, Sierra Leone. So I, I follow them because they, they become um, uprooted from really um, their homeland uh, in a way that doesn't make sense if you look at their history. So we're used to thinking about slaves and I think, um, you know, uh, ex-slaves in terms of being uprooted. And we kind of, we think, of course, you know, they were treated badly. They were, 
uh, treated violently, they didn't have rights, etc., etc. And so the Maroons do fall into that narrative, but in other ways they don't fall into the narrative as well. They were really an elite group of slaves, and there's no reason to expect that this group of slaves, which adopted many of the customs of Jamaican slave society, they changed their names, they took on um, you know, English names, they had uh, sort of favorite patrons, they dressed in English clothes. I mean, there was no, there was nothing about them uh, which suggests that they would be part of this kind of uh, moment where they could be deported. So actually, I tried to write in that book, try to show that this is a story of slavery, but also a story of uh, of freedom in a, in a much more um, kind of a sudden way than we usually think about when we think about, you know, sort of long, the long trajectory of slavery, like the Middle Passage. Mm -hmm. And then were they, so yeah, reading the book, there are so many like elements to the relationship between the Maroons and before they left Jamaica, sort of the elite white community um, and then other enslaved peoples. So there was, there was this element of like paranoia, I guess, that you write about between the colonial authorities and the Maroons. So how did that lead to to conflict? Like how did this sort of existence end for them? Um, there was, um, as I write in the book, there was a, a war where there was a kind of a war that was, um, that wasn't, I mean, a war is a very strange word to use and the slave owners called it a Maroon war. So I call it a Maroon war as well, but it was really kind of a, um, a kind of a, a reaction to a kind of an insult that the Maroons um, used as a way to demand more rights for themselves and more protections for their community. So that uh, that moment of uh, of kind of of demand, of request, of appeal, uh, is then exploited by the Jamaican government to remove them from the island altogether because the Jamaican government sort of realizes at that point and at that again there's these local circumstances there's a new governor in Jamaica who doesn't quite understand how the maroons have kept peace in the island and so he's very nervous about his own kind of future and he doesn't want his name associated with Jamaica with a Jamaica that has that much instability so he uses that moment um, to kind of, you know, to remove them, to kind of trick them um, out of the island. So what's interesting about that moment, uh, which I found very surprising, I think also kind of very sad, mm-hmm. is the is that the Maroons, um, many of the Maroons seem to have expected that the slaves would join them, uh, would ally with them in a war um, against the the Jamaican government and yeah. the slave owners who were trying to uproot them. So the slaves, it turns out, hate the Maroons <laughs> and, because the Maroons had been capturing them. The Maroons had not treated them well. The Maroons had done some violence, um, it seemed, in the in slave plantations with slave women because how else would they continue to have a society unless they had, you know, unless they were able to have relations with women? Yeah. So it just made me... Um, it was really quite surprising. And so many of the slaves who, during the war, the Maroons uh, captured some slaves, uh, hoping that the slaves would kind of, you know, come to their side. And they tried to take, tried to get the slaves to take oaths with them. So together they would defeat potentially the 
the slave owners. I mean, the, this is this is society which has more than ninety percent slaves. So you can imagine how a group of about six hundred or so, about maybe more actually, maybe about eight hundred or so um, maroons, which probably two hundred of which were men, would then imagine that they could ally with this huge slave population and really take over, um, sort of overthrow the Jamaican government. But the slaves are, are not ready to ally with these Maroons. The slaves actually run away from these Maroons. Some of the Maroons actually have become slave owners through the 18th century because the ladder of success in Jamaican society was to own slaves. So even though the Maroons were ex-slaves and they'd escaped slavery, and they lived autonomously, they'd adopted many of the the norms of success which were part of that slave-owning society. So the slaves, um, I mean, betray is a strange word to use because betray implies that we expect somehow that the slaves and the maroons would join together because they were both, uh, you know, they were both formerly enslaved people or still enslaved Mm. people, that they were both black, but there was no kind of... um, there was no unity between the two groups, and the slaves um, are also hoping that if they turn against the Maroons and they become Maroon informants, they could also buy their own freedom or ensure their own freedom. So the war really sort of exposed the kind of society that um, that had evolved in Jamaica, where you had many, many gradations uh, amongst Black people. There was there were slaves. There were these Maroons who lived autonomously. There were also a small group of free Blacks who had been manumitted because um, their mothers were. Um, involved in sexual relations with the slave owners. So some of the slave owners decided they would manumit their own children. And so these free blacks also did not want to be with the Maroons, who they saw as kind of troublemakers. They saw themselves as above slaves because they were, after all, free. Many of them lived in the urban towns like Kingston and not in the rural plantations. So they saw these Slaves, many of them coming, um, you know, from Africa directly, and not, for example, fluent in English, as being really beneath them. So there's a kind of a, I mean, the society that we imagine usually as a slave society, sort of white and black. It it really it was a white and black society, but within that white and black society, it wasn't sort of a unified black or a unified white for that mm. matter. But because the whites were in the moment of war much more unified because at all costs they really wanted to make sure they maintained a plantation society. Mm. Yeah, there's like a spectrum of freedom and unfreedom and mm-hmm. and sort of the the maroon community is sort of in a I don't know, maybe an ambiguous space on that spectrum almost. Yeah, yeah, I think um and I think, I mean, I was thinking about the title, but, you know, it's it's really, it's not, I think the freedom, we used we think of freedom as kind of an absolute, you know, it's, it's, it's slavery versus freedom. And I think it's really a relationship of dependence. You know, the Maroons had freedom because they could rely on dependence from an elite group. So when they lost that dependence, when those people kind of decided they were not ready to be their patrons, is really when they lose their. I mean, it's really it's it's really a system of protection versus a system of mm. freedom. Yeah. So okay. So then it's um, in what year? I think seventeen ninety six. The Maroons <laughs> arrive in Nova Scotia. So they've been forced. They've been deported there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So <laughs> I'm a Canadian. So that seems like quite a random destination, but I'm sure it wasn't. So why Nova Scotia? Well, it, it wasn't it wasn't planned. Um, Nova Scotia wasn't planned. Actually, at that time, the governor of Jamaica actually tried to send the Maroons. He asked, uh, he wrote a letter to London saying, what do we do with these troublemakers? They can't stay here. Uh, we have them in ships, but we're not going to reestablish them in Jamaica, which is what was promised to them, that they would somehow be relocated to a different uh, place within Jamaica if they surrendered. On that basis, they surrendered. And so um, he, the governor, when the governor sent a letter to, to, um, to, to the authorities in London, uh, Sierra Leone came up as a possibility because the British had already established this colony in 1787, and they'd already sent one group of free blacks to colonize, actually two groups of free blacks by that time to colonize uh, Sierra Leone. So it was kind of thinkable that you could take another group of people and ship them to Sierra Leone because uh, black people in general were thought to be able to survive the tropical climate in ways that others wouldn't. And Sierra mm-hmm. Leone had a terrible reputation. So white settlers weren't really excited to go there either. But at that time, Sierra Leone was going through all kind of, kinds of trouble. And the Sierra Leone government says, no, we don't want these Maroons here, we already have enough trouble. We're not sure which side they'll go in. Will they come here and cause, you know, they're causing trouble to you in Jamaica. Maybe they'll cause trouble to us here as well. So they refused them. And so there's a ship that's going um, to Nova Scotia. And Nova Scotia was kind of ideal because it was far away enough from the Caribbean that the Maroons could not really easily come back. And it was really seen initially as a kind of a stopping point. They would be there and they would kind of wait and London would make a decision about where they should go next. And so they kind of, um, so it wasn't a, wasn't a, the, that they would settle there was happened very uh, randomly that they mm. couldn't even settle there. That decision was made very randomly. And then, so what were they permitted to bring with them? I was just interested because I might have misread, but I'm wondering, did any of them have slaves? Oh, that's, so the Maroons, that is an interesting question. So there's, I don't have any um, evidence that the Maroons brought their slaves with them, but the Maroons definitely owned slaves. Uh, And this this becomes really clear when the British um, abolished slavery um, in the 1830s, and the Maroons are very upset. And uh, the British, after the British abolished slavery, they have a, a short, a, a short period of what they call apprenticeship, where the slaves are kind of in a sort of semi-state of freedom. They don't want to completely free them because they still want to use their services, mm. but they promise to free them at some later date, which ends up being about four years. And so, when the British um, issued this proclamation and they announced to the you know, to the colony that the, your slaves will henceforth be free and they tell the slaves you know you be good to your masters for so many years because only if you're good will you be free in this much time they actually for some reason in that proclamation the maroons are not allowed to have that apprenticeship period for their own slaves the british force the maroons to free their slaves in that hmm. moment so the Maroons are very upset. They're outraged by this proclamation because they too want to have and keep their slaves for a longer period of time. So, so you know from that moment that the Maroons are vested in slavery. And you also know when the, during the war when the Maroon slaves are running away uh, from the Maroons into back into slave society, ironically, that there is uh, that the Maroons have slavery. The extent of slaves, um, the entrenchment um, is very hard to 
um, to to measure to be um, yeah I just don't know yeah no I'm just interested so I just I'm I'm actually asking because recently in Canada there's been this movement towards slavery scholars reemphasizing that yes indeed there were slaves being held in Canada prior to the 1800s so I'm just curious when they would have arrived um, late 18th century nearly 1800 would they yeah, how were they perceived? I guess how was slavery perceived in Nova Scotia at that time? Yeah, so as it, I mean, the 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 book ended up being much more complicated. I thought I was following the Maroons, you know, from place <laughs> to place, and I would kind of, you know, I would see what evidence they've left, and they left an incredible amount of evidence, surprisingly, for such a small group of people. So it's really a story of how the Maroons captured, you know, sort of the worldwide imagination in a way that's, that's again, it's hard to imagine in a world, you know, before the internet. I mean, there's really this sort of luminous amounts written about them by all kinds of people. I mean, by, by ministers, by newspaper people, by sailors, by military men, by women, um, sort of visiting women. So um, in terms of the... It's slavery, the status of slavery in Nova Scotia. So I was saying, so it's so in order to follow the Maroons, it was really important for me to understand the status of slavery and the status of uh, you know black people in general in each of these British zones where they went. Mm. So by the time the Maroons arrived in Nova Scotia, so slavery wasn't uh, sort of legal in the sense of kind of it wasn't in the books, but it was um, it was legal. In, a, in another sense, in the sense that people who own slaves could continue owning them. But when slaves ran away from people who owned them and the case came, uh, in, the case went to trial, many of the elites did not uh, choose to defend the masters of the slaves. So there's a kind of a conflict um, of some kind between uh, keeping slavery and not keeping slavery, but it's not, uh, it's, there's no kind of abolitionist movement the way we think about, although there's many abolitionist sentiments. The black loyalists, so after the American Revolution in 1783, there's many, many black loyalists uh, who are free blacks who supported the British who end up in Nova Scotia. At the same time, there's about 30,000, 30,000 plus white loyalists who also end up in Nova Scotia, and many of them are taking their slaves with them. So how many slaves in Nova Scotia? Um, it's hard to say. Maybe maybe a thousand, uh, maybe, maybe less. Um, there were freed blacks again, at least uh, two to three thousand, maybe freed blacks. So mm. the, we know that racism existed in Nova Scotian society. We know that there's all kinds of runaway ads um, by uh, masters whose slaves ran away. We know also, for example, that even though there are free black people in Nova Scotia, they're treated very much like like we think about the treatment of slaves, they're not paid. Um, if they're in places where uh, white loyalists want to live, they're beaten up, they're ostracized. Um, they are, you know, they're sort of relegated to the lowest kind of uh, manual labor. Uh, they don't really have security. They're worried about being um, sold or shipped to places like the West Indies, where slavery is very legal and very active. And also they're afraid to be of being shipped to the United States, which is where they escaped from, where by this time, by the 1790s, the Constitution has been ratified and slavery is legal. So the Maroons are entering a society where there's a there's a kind of a, a, a paternalism about... Um, about free blacks, and there's also a sort of active 
uh, racism and active kind of violence against some people. So there's there's a range of, of reactions. Mm-hmm. And the, the person who receives the Maroons at the time they go to Nova Scotia is a white loyalist. Again, the person who kind of got me into this topic in some strange way, a John Wentworth, who had uh, left, who was a governor of New Hampshire before he uh, comes to Nova Scotia. Part of his reward for remaining loyal to the British Empire is getting a position in, in Nova Scotia. So he's, I think you can kind of imagine Nova Scotia in the 1790s. It's in some very strange way, it's not that different than Sierra Leone at this time because it's a, it's a, it's a colony which the British are trying to build up to make up for the loss of the 13 colonies. So mm. they're interested in various ways in populating it and finding ways to enrich it and creating kind of uh, trade possibilities with the West Indies. So when the Maroons arrive in Nova Scotia, there's kind of an interest in seeing them as, you know, as a, as a, as a way to, to create a, a new kind of, you know, menial, manual labor in that population, kind of a reserve group of people who could be called in to do road work, to build fences, uh, maybe do domestic work, maybe also, uh, like the Mi'kmaq, serve in the in the military uh, for the British. This is the time of the of, of British wars with the French, also incidentally the time of the Haitian Revolution, which is part of why the Maroons have been deported from Jamaica because the threat is looms much larger because the British slave owner because the Jamaican slave owners are imagining maybe a Haitian like revolution in Jamaica. So in Nova Scotia, because the numbers of uh, the enslaved and the free blacks are small, they're not worried about rebellion in that kind of a way. So they are able to imagine incorporating them in a menial way because they've seen that they they already have experience um, kind of incorporating the black loyalists in that kind of a way. Yeah. Um, And then I guess, so just to continue on the theme of Nova Scotia, a theme that I picked up on was the weather. So there were just, you know, as somebody who lives in this part of the world, it can get very cold. And there were a few, um, I found them slightly humorous quotations that you'd pulled from the archival material in which someone refers to, I think they said the climate is perhaps, yeah, I have it here, the greatest natural evil attending this country. And then another person referred to the winters as only fit for bears and moose. (laughs) I can confirm that. (laughs) So how was the harshness, like, how did the harshness of 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 winter like why was it significant for the plight of the maroons in Nova Scotia? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and that actually the, the winter kept coming up so often that I was <laughs> compelled to write a chapter on it because the references were just so abundant. Yeah. So what surprised me most? Okay, so the winter comes up because the maroons elicit sympathy from all kinds of well-wishers, evangelicals. Uh, abolitionists, um, because they are seen as uh, people who are constitutionally, because they're black, uh, unsuited for the winter. You know, so they would somehow, so black people would kind of wilt and die and wither away in the winter. So we have to save them, not because they've been unjustly deported, uh, not because you know slavery is unjust, not because they need to do menial work, but because they really have to be rescued from winter. 
and it's it's so interesting. And the Maroons uh, kind of pick up on this. And so in their petitions to remove themselves from Nova Scotia, because they've decided they can never be an independent people in Nova Scotia, right? So they kind of figure this out very quickly in the first winter when they suffer terribly. And so they launch a campaign to leave Nova Scotia and they start petitioning to people via some other people in Nova Scotia who are ready to write for them. And in their petitions, they write that they cannot survive in a place where they can't grow pineapple, where they can't, you know, where there's no food that they're of the kind they're used to. They themselves would just shrivel. So there's a there's a very, and I think there's a very clever kind of so you can read this two ways. One, there's a very clever kind of use of what's going on, the kind of the, the climate of opinion that the Maroons exploit to get out of Nova Scotia, or, which I think may be equally likely, maybe even more likely, the Maroons have lived in this world and just in the same way they pick up English names and they swear loyalty to the British king in Jamaica and also in Nova Scotia. They'll continue to swear loyalty and they'll fight for the British, even in Sierra Leone. They also begin to imagine themselves as a people who actually are not suited to the climate and they actually will not survive because they don't really belong in that climate. <laughs> So, you know, so there's a kind of, and that works. I mean, this kind of repeating sense and the governor of Nova Scotia is very frustrated by this language. And he says, what are we talking about? These people are hardy. They're wonderful. In fact, they're more suited to the cold because they're already working, that they already have worked in the tropics. So we want exactly these kinds of hardy bodies who have survived the tropical climate to also be in very cold climates. You know, they kind of, they don't, they belong in these extreme climates more than other people do. And he says, look at the loyalists, look at the black loyalists who have settled here after the American Revolution. They're thriving, they're reproducing, they're not dying. So why are we having this, you know, incredible, long-lasting communication about their bodies mm -hmm. in cold climate. Yeah, so then, and then so, um, inevitably, they do go to Sierra Leone, and they are transported there. So, I mean, in a nutshell, what's, how does that come about, and, and what's the initial experience? Well, that's, that's a kind of a sad story. So they go to Sierra Leone, and they end up, um, I think they end up landing there in September or October, so in a very terrible time. So, so the terrible time in sort of multiple ways, I guess. One, many of them do die. They, they don't have the immunities um, that people assume that black bodies will have because mm. they are Americans. I mean, they, they had been in, Ameri in, the, in the American world for generations. And so they are um, so they're not African in the way that that the abolitionists are imagining them to be. So the abolitionists are not, and the evangelicals and the British government, they're not really sending the Maroons to really suffer and die in Sierra Leone. That is really not their intention. But they're just, even though the first two free, the, the, uh, the first two uh, free black migration to Sierra Leone um, after the American Revolution in 1787, and then when the black loyalists from Nova Scotia go to Sierra Leone in 1792, even though there are very large numbers of deaths and, and suffering, the there's just not a thinking about their suffering in the same way because the, there's such a strong belief in the survival of, of you know African descendant bodies in Africa. So there's a, so there's so they're kind of traumatized um, by this the the Maroons. So that's and then on the immediate context when the Maroons end up in Sierra Leone right at that time the Black loyalists who had 
been uh, volunteered to go to Sierra Leone because they too did not think they could find what they wanted in Nova Scotia. About a thousand black loyalists had ended up in Sierra Leone in 1792. So by the time the Maroons go to Sierra Leone, it's 1800. So the black loyalists had imagined kind of creating a republic for themselves in Sierra Leone, the way they had seen the white patriots in the uh, 13 colonies creating a republic. But they, but that is not what the British had imagined for them in Sierra Leone. So the black loyalists in Sierra Leone are kind of in the midst of, a, of again, you could call it kind of a revolution of the same kind, of a similar kind that you see around you know, in multiple places in France and Haiti. Um, and so they're part of this movement of trying to get greater freedoms. So the Maroons come just in time uh, to quell that rebellion. So the Maroons will side with the British government and suppress the black loyalists. And by suppress, it's a, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very small kind of rebellion, not what we think about in terms of you know, thousands of people with arms kind of you know, ready to die, but a small group of black leaders who are trying to really sway the very tiny white government. So imagine maybe about 1,500 um, black loyalists with maybe about, you know, 20 or 30 people who are who are comprising the white government. So very, very small. So these black loyalists could perhaps have gotten something from their rebellion. But the Maroons come, again, remember the Maroons are a military community from mm. Jamaica. They have, they have used arms. They survived. They ran away because they had some military experience. They trained their children in being military fighters. So they side with the British. They actually, and they kind of... Um, suppress this loyalist, black loyalist revolt, but um, they don't become kind of, you know, enemies of the black loyalists in the way that could have happened. The uh, Maroons actually uh, look up in time and not that much time, within just a few years, you see the uh, black, uh, the Maroons looking at the black loyalists as kind of, you know, as, as a as someone who they aspired to be because the black loyalists were even more British than the, uh, than the Maroons were uh, in the Maroons' eyes because they were, again, they spoke English, they had, so many of them were Christians, and, and the Maroons who had started becoming Christian um, already in Nova Scotia, the governor had established some schools for them because he had imagined that in order to make the Maroons loyal to the government, part of the loyalty was going to be in Christianizing them. Mm -hmm. And so the Maroons who already come with some, some kind of Christian background are, are ready to look at the black loyalists as, as kind of, you know, as people who they want to emulate. So it's a very interesting, um, it's, you know, and the black mm -hmm. loyalists and the, and the Maroons kind of become um, like the new black British elite in Sierra Leone, and they see themselves as a as a kind of a superior people in relation to the Africans in Sierra Leone, uh, because you know because of all these reasons they see themselves as more cosmopolitan. Um, they they have some understanding of Christianity. They understand British law, British customs, and so they kind of um, in fact do preserve. Uh, Sierra Leone for the British until sort of the next wave. Mm. And then I guess without giving away <laughs> what I consider to be a really fascinating epilogue, um, do they ever wish to go back to Jamaica throughout all of this? 
Yeah, so this is the, you know, this is the, so they ask, they ask, they go, they ask to go back to Jamaica in, uh, uh, throughout, right? So they're asking to go back to Jamaica uh, when they're in Nova Scotia, uh, when they're in Sierra Leone. Um, and uh, that longing uh, for Jamaica is with them um, throughout. And, and they pass this longing to the next generations. So it's, you know, so it's... Uh, um, so you, it really, as you read about, you know, again, again, I won't also give away the epilogue, because yeah. <laughs> the, the, the story continues to, to the 1840s. And um, it's striking because, again, you think, I think it really fundamentally shifts how we think about um, migration and uh, people's sense of who they are. Yeah. And, and even when they, uh, over time, even when they seem, um, you know, integrated, so you really start really thinking about sort of the meaning of uh, yeah meaning of, of belonging to a place um, in a different way. So even though they maintain their attachment to all to the British throughout, uh, they have a different kind of attachment to Jamaica. Yeah. Um, so with that, then um, I'd like to wrap up our conversation. But before I do, I'd love to hear about what you're working on next. Uh, thank you. Um, I actually this this chapter on winter that you um, that I mentioned mm-hmm. has taken me now to a to a, a new project that looks at how um, ideas about climate really affected um, the 18th century sense of not just black and white but about being human. Uh, how climate bequeathed. Um, characteristics to us, for example, like ambition or enterprise or more on the negative side, maybe indolence, promiscuity. So I'm looking at how um, ideas of climate um, had consequences, not just in terms of sort of the cultural history of how people thought of themselves, but how during an era of colonialism, how these ideas of climate affected what people did, where they lived, um, who they recruited, where they retired, etc. Oh my gosh, that sounds very compelling. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that. Um, great. Ruma, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It was a pleasure hearing more about your wonderful book. So thank you again. Thanks very much. 